so last week uh, we began, or we read the scripture and made some reference to the scripture that we'll study more in depth today as we are in our series, Selections from Matthew. So the same verses that we talked through last week that Lainey referenced. And uh, so let's stand together and let's, let's read um, our passage today. Once again, out loud all together. At the end, I'll say the gospel of the Lord, and you guys all say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read this all together. Ready? Go. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. Maybe hmm. be seated. As we begin, a question to, to think about. Discipleship and following Jesus always requires courage. So here's the question. I want you to tell your neighbor, someone that is next to you, and I challenge you, if you've got lots of people you know next to you, maybe turn the other direction and talk to somebody that doesn't know you, um, but there's no hard and fast rules to this. I just want you to tell somebody something courageous you have done, big or small, and you have one minute to answer, big or small, something courageous that you have done. Ready, go. Okay, I'll give you about 20 more seconds, 20 more seconds, wrap that up, thinking about courage. Okay, let me hear a couple, some interesting, courageous things that you just heard. Sorry, what? Oh, clean? Oh, getting sober. Praise God. There's, yeah, anybody else? Got ready this morning? That was courageous? Yeah, to get here? Yeah. Very good. Sorry? Petting a shark. Okay, that is a unique one. That is, that's great. Is that also why you have a hand prosthetic? Or I'm, I'm just, just kidding. Yeah. One more. One more courageous thing. You left paradise after it had burned down and moved to Salem. And we're glad that you did. We are indeed sorry about paradise. Yeah, yeah. Courage. Our life, a lot of things will happen in our lifetimes. I was born in 1978, and aren't you also glad? Yeah, okay, 1978. Some notable things happened in 1978. Here's a few things that I learned this week. First of all, smallpox was eradicated in 1978. Isn't that awesome? 
Who knew that transmissible diseases would again come to the forefront of our minds in my lifetime? Uh, 1978, a video game called Space Invaders was launched. Yeah. That is fast paced. That is moving. That is, I mean, addictive, right? Yeah. Who knew that video games would such be a big part of the world? The comic strip Garfield was published and grew in popularity in 1978. Yeah. So we have Garfield to thank for all the cat lovers in the world and the rich sarcasm that is everywhere. Yeah. Chris Bowlby. Yeah. That's, you could just say thank you, Garfield. And uh, finally, the first cell, cell your phone was introduced in Illinois. And... Is this Bob Smith up there? Is that Bob on the... Sorry, Bob. One of our, yeah. <laughs> Who knew that in my 30s, Steve Jobs would stand up in front of a group of people and introduce the iPhone that would irrevocably change the world? 43 years that I have lived, and I've lived in what is almost unimaginable. And I still have half my life to go. Praise God. Yeah. Hope I can keep up with it. Here's some food for thought. Our lives on one hand will be but a blip in history. Equally important, we have no idea what will transpire in our lifetimes. The call of Jesus comes before we can totally know or understand what our life will ultimately mean. And guys, I'm convinced as we're experiencing the changes of the world, that God is building a Jesus-centered community here so we can endure the shaking that is to come because there's more ahead of us than what is behind us. Today, we will pick up the historical account of Jesus in the region of Galilee, where Jesus will call some young men to follow him. And it's about AD 30 at this point. It's about AD 30. Now, we'll come back to this uh, story, but allow me to move ahead to AD 67, 37 years later. Roman general Vespasian is marching through Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was like an occupied country and was a sore spot for the Romans. It was always full of revolution and revolt. And now General Vespasian is going to solve the Jewish problem. The Jews were resisting, and under the leadership of Josephus, they had gathered a focused resistance to the Romans. Factions of violent zealots. You might be familiar with that word. Um, zealot shows up in the Bible. This was a, a group of people who saw it fit to violently overthrow um, the Roman government. Particularly in this region of Galilee, Men had been gathered to violently resist. And if you were a man in Galilee at the time of Jesus and forward, it is highly likely that you would have been a part of this violent resistance. So Vespasian had to go through Galilee on his way to conquer Jerusalem. And um, he was experienced, battle-hardened, and he laid siege to the well-fortified city of Jatapata. <laughs> Jatapata. 
Yeah. You don't know if I said it wrong. So stop making assumptions. <laughs> and the Jewish rebels, these resistance fighters, they fell and 40,000 were slaughtered in the rout. Their death, in a sense, was futile. Rome would move on to Jerusalem and destroy it in AD 70. Also in AD 67, at the same time, Simon, Peter, was crucified upside down in Rome. Same year. This painting by Luca Giordano depicts his crucifixion. When Jesus called Simon to follow him back in AD 30, the zealots were also recruiting men to join their violent resistance. Simon was destined to die at the hands of Rome either way. The question is, was his death a futility? Now back to AD 30, back to the present of the story that we pick up, and then also back to our present. Simon Peter had no idea of either possibility. We also have little idea about what our life will mean and why Jesus is calling us the way that he is, how our life will end up. But just like Peter and Andrew and James and John, and then later Levi and Bartholomew and Thaddeus, actually I think Bartholomew and Thaddeus are the same guy, anyway. Simon the Zealot, the other one named James, and all the rest of the disciples, their response to the call of Jesus would have tremendous impact. And the question is, what call will we say yes to? Matthew 4 gives us the account of Jesus calling his first disciples, and we'll focus on Simon and Andrew this morning. And I want us to take a closer look at the actions of Jesus here so that we might be full of expectation. Verses 18 through 20, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Let's notice the activity of Jesus. First of all, Jesus was walking. <laughs> he was on earth. The historical Jesus. These accounts are not mythology or folklore. This is historical accounts. Jesus was bound to gravity. <laughs> he did not float from place to place, place to place. Now it's natural for us not to notice this. Hopefully we don't even notice what Matthew is saying here because we are so acquainted with the doctrine of the incarnation. That is that God became flesh. God was not just spirit hovering here and there, but he came flesh and he dwelt among us. Philippians tells us that Jesus Picking up in chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in, a, in human likeness, and being found in human form. This is Jesus, in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
we find that Jesus is right in the middle of actual history. And I point that out because the call that he has for you and I is in the middle of actual history, history that is going somewhere, history that needs a witness of Jesus in its future because shaking is coming and shaking will continue to come. So let's continue to do away with notions of like Superman, Jesus, or a ghostly Jesus who appears from time to time, or just a folklore Jesus, or just a Jesus that exists in the realm of ideas, or just a Jesus who has an interesting philosophy about the way to do life. Jesus came in the flesh, and as the king of the world, he went to the cross, showing us the way that the world would be redeemed. And he's inviting us, come and follow me, and I will teach you to fish for people. The second thing I noticed here, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. I wonder if... (laughs) I wonder if Jesus glanced over at the Sea of Galilee and was like, I made that. (laughs) And it's good. Yeah. The city of Turner made Turner Lake. They did okay. (laughs) I've kayaked on it. It's great. Thanks, Jimmy Nage. It's great. Oh, but man, Sea of Galilee, formed by God himself. Jesus was present at the creation of the world. This is who this Jesus is. Colossians tells us, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking of Jesus. For in him, all things in heaven on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So it is this real human Jesus who walked next to his creation, in his creation, fully God, fully man, a paradox that we can't quite understand, but one that connects all of the dots. Jesus is the epicenter of history. Next, let us notice that Jesus saw Simon and Andrew. Jesus does the seeing. Sometimes because we live in a self-focused, self-directed world, we think that we see Jesus but he saw us long before we ever noticed him. Saw you in your real life. He sees us right in the middle of our actual lives. Jesus sees you in the middle of your work. He sees you in the middle of your hopes. He sees you in the middle of your dreams, your disappointments, your sinfulness, your brokenness. Jesus sees you right in the middle of that. Jesus comes with compassion He comes with a command. He comes with a calling for you. He comes with purpose. He comes with identity for you that our world is chasing. Jesus saw Simon and Andrew in the middle of their work, fishing. In Luke's account uh, of this same encounter, we're given more detail. Jesus gave them a command to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And when they pulled up the nets, the nets were bursting with fish. Um, And then they, you know, Peter's like, I'm not worthy to, you know, and he follows Jesus. But Matthew seems content to tell the bullet points of the story. The short of the story is that Jesus comes into the middle of our regular, normal lives and he interrupts them. And he doesn't hesitate to cast his word right into our lives. A word that would be arresting, a word that would change everything. Into whatever we happen to be doing at the time, Jesus casts his word and his call into our lives. This is Isaac's speculation, but maybe Matthew 
doesn't bother with the details about Jesus doing miracles for Peter and Andrew to be able to follow him because he knows that in the end, the disciple of Jesus is called to walk his path toward the cross and through the cross. A catch of fish may impress for a moment, but Jesus is leading us to the cross and then ultimately to resurrection. Matthew wants to get right to the point, the disciple of Jesus, not necessarily called to be wowed by Jesus, but just to respond immediately. Verse 19 says, and he said, Jesus said to them, it is the word of Jesus that comes to us. In other instances, Jesus doesn't mind being approached first, but there is something holy about his initiation with you and me. It is mysteriously personal, but it's also so epic. And some of you might be experiencing that either right now in this moment, that the Holy Spirit is speaking something profound to you, or maybe there's this season you're in where something about Jesus is awakening within you. It is the word of Jesus that is coming to you personally, and he is calling you, and he is disrupting you, and you're trying to get comfortable back in status quo and the way that your life is, but no longer is it comfortable because something is awakened within you. What has caused it to be awake is the word of Jesus by his spirit that is coming to your heart. Maybe it's a preacher who preaches it, or maybe it's a billboard, or maybe it's something that we see that connects with us in a deep way. It is the word of Christ who comes and calls. Jesus' word has power. Jesus' word reverberates through all history and through all time. Just a few verses before, you might recall, we studied the temptation of Jesus and the words that Jesus said. He said, away with you, Satan. And in verse 11, then the devil left him. The word of Jesus has power to change, to interrupt, to call, to woo, to heal, to rebuke, to set free the word of Christ. A few chapters from now, in chapter 8, Jesus is approached by a Roman centurion who's like a soldier or a police officer, and the centurion's servant is paralyzed. The centurion shows Jesus some faith, but it is the word of Jesus when he says this, go and let it be done for you according to your faith, and the servant was healed in that hour. Jesus' word has power. To Simon and Andrew, and then he said to them, follow me. Jesus' word has power. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Jesus' word has power. Jesus is not just a, an spouting off some ideas, but he is the son of God who spoke creation into existence and he calls us and his word has power. To Simon and Andrew, Jesus' word has power. Follow me. I love what notable author and Pastor Fleming Rutledge, she says this. She, she rightly notes that Jesus doesn't invite. He commands. Too often we translate Jesus unknowingly according to modern conventions. We like things to be very invitational at our leisure whenever we're comfortable. And Jesus says, follow me now. Scripture says, choose this day whom you will serve. And it's uncomfortable for the consumer who's so used to lining up products and evaluating them and seeing cost-benefit analysis. But Jesus comes with a command. Come and follow. He doesn't come with a big promise of what they will get out of it. He does say, I'll teach you to fish for people. There's no indication that he says, what do you guys think about coming? 
why would it matter what they thought? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Stop trying to rationalize your way into this. A few weeks ago, we studied those who said, well, first let me do this, and then I will follow, and Jesus rebuked them. Your decision-making is to respond to the word of Christ, not to your own whim. There's no possible way for us to get out of our consumeristic mindset until we follow the command of Jesus. He doesn't say, follow me, and you'll get relief from your guilty conscience, although he would teach them the way of forgiveness. He doesn't say, follow me, and I will make sure you get to heaven. But they will learn the reality of the resurrection from the dead. Jesus commands them out of their livelihood, out of normal. He calls them out of what they knew. He calls them to leave behind their nets, and they leave, and they begin a new life, and they submit themselves to this teacher who would become their Lord and master. And in doing so, Jesus fills their life with meaning and purpose, meaning and purpose that they would have never been able to understand upon that first call, but only as they were going did they begin to understand. Only the life of faith does God begin to be somewhat more comprehensible to us as we simply step out of the boat and follow him. And I think we all want to have a meaningful life. Scholar and commentator Frederick Bruner writes about this passage in The Call of Jesus. He says, We sometimes worry, and rightly, about the ambition that burns within us, that we all feel from time to time. We want our life to be mean. We want to be somebody, and we want to do things. And it is not always easy to sort out how much of this wanting is selfish and how much is Christian. Jesus addresses this ambition. Do you want to make something of your life? To have a life that is useful? Follow me, is what Jesus says. I know there's you in this room. We're in the middle of life and family and work and money and intense schedules. And you may even feel the futility of it from time to time. Jesus says, follow me and I will enliven your work and I will re- redirect you for that, your work to be about the kingdom in the midst of all the activity and the responsibility. In this room, there are those who are in their last third of your life. And you're asking about your purpose and about your lives. And I believe that Jesus sees you and invites you into following him so that you can experience purpose. Did you notice a couple of weeks ago when we had all these people being baptized, that there was both young and old who were being called to follow him? Our baptismal like sloshed about with older people's faith and younger people's faith and everybody's faith in between. God is calling people to follow him. Praise God. We also have people in this room that are in the first third of their lives. And you too are being compelled to follow Jesus. The word of Christ is meeting in your heart. You will be leading the world into the next era. A very different world that I was born into. A very different world than is right now. You will endure the next great shifts of history. And let me assure you that Jesus is drawing you closer to himself. So that you're equipped from the inside to the outside to be a part of to be about his business. As we observe Peter and Andrew leaving behind their jobs, I feel compelled to make some qualifications. But we must also let the words of Jesus to be as potent as they are. So here's the qualification, and then the second. It would be rash to read these words and decide that in order to be a Christian, you must quit your job. Some of you are like, oh, thank you for relieving me. However, also, statement number two, and 
It would be foolish to read these words and decide there are aspects of your life that Jesus cannot call you out of. Both of those are somehow true. The word of Jesus will come to you in a way that is particular to you. For example, in our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality homework last week, we read of Anthony, who in the third and fourth centuries heard the words of Jesus, gave up all of his wealth and comfort, and spent 20 years in the desert in order to commune with Jesus. And after that, he rejoined normal life and led incredibly fruitful ministries among the poor and the rich alike. He was called to go away so that God could do something big. And I would be daring enough to say there's some in this room right now that God is calling something significant of you. And let us be a church that preaches a gospel that would ask something significant of his followers to give all things. Now, as the gospel of Matthew, oh, I wanted to say this. I put it in bold, so it must be important. I'll let you tell me if I was right. Jesus calls all to give their lives to him And some he calls to leave their whole life behind. Not all will be called to leave their vocation for the sake of ministry, but all will be called to give their vocation to the Lord to be used for ministry. Peter tells us later that we are a royal priesthood, that all believers have this mantle and this calling to be about the business of God wherever God flings us to and he has some creative ways to fling us you know we got we got lawyers offices and we got law enforcement people and we got teachers and we got educators and we got manual workers and we got data entry people here and every point Jesus is like oh my people are there my people are there as the gospel of Matthew progresses we see as a contrast highlighted between the crowd and the true followers of Jesus Let's not be like the crowd. The crowd would so often be impressed with Jesus, but the crowd is also the ones who said, crucify him. Often impressed, wow. In these couple of verses, we observe Jesus confronting Simon and Andrew up close and personal. The crowd may be a place to learn about Jesus, but the call comes to us personally, and as it does, it pulls us from the status quo of the crowd. Simon and Andrew would have to unlearn their conceptions of what the Messiah would be like. But their journey began with the next yes. At Jesus' call, they said yes. They dropped everything and immediately left to follow Jesus. And upon Simon, later, recognizing Jesus as the true Messiah, Jesus renamed him to Peter. But Peter still had a lot of unlearning to do. A lot of unlearning. At Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter's the one who denied even knowing Jesus because his conception of Jesus was that he would be the messianic finger that, figure, finger, figure. <laughs> he would be the messianic figure who with sword rays would lead all those Galilean zealots to overthrow Rome. That's what Peter thought. That was the heroism, heroism of the day. If there were trading cards in that day, they would have been about these zealot warriors who given their lives trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. But Peter had to unlearn. He had to learn that it was through Jesus' death and resurrection that the world would be saved. But on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, so this is Peter's big arc. Peter had no idea where this was all going. This is three years later. Peter... Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's just denied Jesus. He feels shameful. And Peter's restored by Jesus. 
another call of Jesus, another word of Jesus on the shore of the lake in which Jesus calls him again to follow him and to be about his ministry to people. At the end of John 21, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Just notice the words that are very similar to the first call. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. John adds commentary here. He says, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. In other words, Peter, you're being called into death like me. After this, he said to Simon Peter, follow me. What I have just done, follow me. Let's fast forward back to AD 67. Peter is crucified upside down. His countrymen were slaughtered by Vespasian. Peter asked to be crucified upside down, not in the same way that Jesus has, church tradition tells us, because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord did. And he went willingly. Those who die in Christ do not die in vain. Peter was living and dying for resurrection. He wrote to the early church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No violent zealots were raised from the dead. Their dreams of Jewish political and national freedom died with them. And probably you didn't even know that story until I told you this morning. It's nearly unnotable in the annals of history because history is full of this violent cycle. But we all know someone by the name of Peter As a matter of fact, the greatest cathedral in the world is St. Peter's Cathedral. The Jews would hold no land and have no home until 1948. And at the time, Christians, Christian by Christian, was being snuffed out. And it may have seemed that it was all futile, all bound to the inevitability of the empire of Rome. But I would ask us, who is Rome? Where's the Roman Empire? But a crucified king still reigns. A living hope. A hope that is not dependent upon whatever happens in the kingdoms of this world, but is fully dependent on just what happens as Christians take up our identity to follow him. When you were young, you thought you chose where you were going to go and what your life would be about. You felt in control, Peter, and you, Americans. But I tell you, when you are older, you will not choose where you are all to go. And in saying this, Jesus is telling you the manner in which you will die. And your death will be full of glory and victory for Jesus Christ if it does not take on those false temptations the false hopes of the world. Rather, we choose to be crucified with him 
the one who's crucified for us. When Jesus says, come and follow me, we have no idea. No idea what is coming. But we do know that upon our followership, our whole lives will be validated because we're following the one true God. This is the deep call of discipleship. And I would say this to the American church. It's no more games. It's no more pretend. It's no more nice pat on the back spirituality. Get my card to heaven and be good. None of that. This is life and death. What a gift to be called into it. What a gift. A living hope. 